tonight's Bible reading is continuing in the first book of Samuel, uh, chapter 13 and verses 1 to 15. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel and a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Jebar, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Arben. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Oh, thank you. Oh, lovely. What a welcome. Um, Hello, everybody online as well. It is a pleasure to be here on a Saturday night. Uh, in Kirui, it is uh, an honour to be able to open uh, God's word for us all today. I'm going to begin by praying, uh, and then we'll dive into 1 Samuel 13. Uh, please bow with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, please speak through me tonight. Your word is filled with applications for our modern lives, and we learn from historical people like Saul. May we tonight not just hear what you have to say to us, but listen and be prepared to put into practice every day. Amen. How often are we tempted 
to take things into our own hands. Picture this for a second. You're on the sideline. It's the grand final. The crowd is roaring. One of your players, in the final minutes, he's on the wing. He has the ball. He's sending it up the line like an absolute king. In the center of the field, the striker has made a run. He's calling for it, but the one with the ball, he makes the wrong move. He tries to get around the defender. He obviously mustn't have seen the striker. Like, what are you? Because that was, that, was the right, that was the right decision. But you know what? It's okay. This defender, he's tiny. He's practically a kid. Surely this guy will get through that defender. No, it doesn't happen. The final whistle blows. The ball goes out. We lose the game. But if I was on the field, I saw that guy over there. I could have done it. You know what? Not only am I groaning with frustration with the rest of the crowd, I'm almost tempted to turn to the coach and beg him to put me on the field. Because if I had a run, if I had just done it, I wouldn't have taken the glory. I would have just shouldered the tiny defender out of the way, though, and sent the perfect cross to the striker. Uh, who any player worth their salt would have noticed was there. Uh, and he would have, obviously, because of the incredible precision of my corner, volleyed it perfectly into the top right corner. Goal, we win. Game over. Would have been phenomenal. Sure, I would have been a grown man running onto an under-10s <laughs> field. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is I could have done it better. If I could just run on that field, it would have been a different story. And you know what? That's a silly example. And it's, and it's not really one that is necessarily helpful for everyone. Uh, maybe not everyone could have pictured that, but I have that really solidly in my mind as something I have felt and experienced before. Um, so you know what? Uh, to make my analogy maybe a little bit more universal, let me shift gears a little. Maybe you're at work. Someone makes a mistake. Mistakes happen. But it wasn't you that made the mistake. But it affects you. And you could have avoided it. Not could have. You definitely would have avoided it. Either your manager uh, doesn't know what they're doing, or the person you're managing doesn't, isn't doing their job properly, or the client you're working with actually doesn't know best, despite the fact that they think they do. Either way, if we just took matters into our own hands, we'd do it properly. Not as fun as running onto a soccer field, but same kind of situation. That is what happens in the story we heard so beautifully read tonight. This story uh, is, uh, if you were here last week, uh, you would have heard that Israel, uh, in this time in the Bible, uh, had just gone through a period of time with no king. They had a series of rulers uh, that God appointed them, and they were in this cycle uh, of war and getting a ruler and then getting saved and then thanking God and repenting for their sin and then sinning again 
and they were in this, they were in this cycle and they were kind of coming out of that and being like, God, just give us a king. We want, a, we want a king like everyone else because all these other people, they have kings that lead, us, lead their uh, armies into battle. And God was like, okay, you can have your king. And so they get the king whose main purpose is to lead them into battle. And he seemed like the man for the job. This guy was Saul. He was a tall, attractive, royal, regal man. But we find later, you know, he isn't all that. He fails, not really in his duty as a military leader, but actually in his relationship with God, which it turns out as king of God's people was his true duty. If you're wanting a heading or a big idea or a thing to remember, it's that Saul's failure here is that he takes matters into his own hands and he does not accept God's commands. This chapter is a fantastic example of that failure. I would encourage everyone to grab their Bibles and open to 1 Samuel 13. Uh, and I'm just going to go through that now and kind of retell this story and, and, and hopefully try and uh, explain some things uh, on the way. I'm just going to grab mine. One sec. Verse 1, Israel gets their king and he does his job. He leads his army against a Philistine outpost, the ancient enemy of the Israelite people, and he sends his son Jonathan, and Jonathan wins. But that just makes the Philistines angry. I'm down to verse 5 now. They form up an army in response to their loss. They gather 3,000 chariots, and there's two men in each chariot, and they're foot soldiers. There's so many that, verse 5, it says, they're as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They're uncountable. The Israelite army is instantly hard-pressed. Their response? They run. And they hide. Uh, they dive into caves and thickets among rocks and in pits and in cisterns, none of which would have been very fun hiding spots. They cross the river into other countries. Anywhere they can go, they run from this huge force. King Saul and the remains of his trembling army are in Gilgal, they, they, where they're all rallied to. And he looks around at his dwindling numbers and he hears the reports that the Philistine army is absolutely massive and he waits. He waits seven days. You see, uh, the book 1 Samuel uh, is not just about Samuel. It's not just about Saul. Uh, it's about another guy, David, and he'll come later. Um, but we haven't talked about Samuel yet in this sermon, so I just wanted to quickly uh, let you know that Samuel, uh, if you haven't been following along uh, with us at Saul Arrival uh, as much, uh, thus far, Samuel was a prophet. He was a prophet of God who appointed Saul, and um, 
yes, for Saul, it was his main purpose to lead the people into battle. But even as a king, he was not actually free to initiate warfare uh, whenever and against whoever he wanted. He had to answer to a higher authority. This system had been set up. And so Saul could only receive marching orders from God through his prophet, Samuel. And so he's been ordered to wait for Samuel. And he said, wait seven days, and then I'll come and I'll offer the proper sacrifices. If you're reading along, you'll see that seven days pass. No Samuel. Saul starts to freak out a little bit. He looks around at his dire situation. There's armies on all sides. There is a collapse of his own ranks. We learn after this passage, uh, between verses 16 to 22, we learn that the, the Israelites don't even have proper weapons because of how big and mighty the Philistines are. They have a monopoly on everyone that makes weapons, and so they've got all of the swords, and they've got all of the spears. And Saul and Jonathan... They have a sword and a spear, and no one else in their army does. He is unable to hold his army together, and he is desperate to hurry up and get things underway. So he thinks, I don't need Samuel to do these sacrifices. That was what I was told to do. It was, it was, it was wait seven days, then Samuel will turn up, and he will do the sacrifices. And you know what? I don't need Samuel to do that. I can do the sacrifices. So verse 9, read along with me. He says, it says, uh, So Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Verse 10, Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul ran out on the field when he wasn't supposed to. Sure, he wore the right jersey. He got the sacrifices right. He waited seven days. But he didn't do what God commanded. He didn't trust that Samuel would show up. He didn't trust that God would show up. Saul, Samuel rebukes him. He says, Saul, you have done a foolish thing. Chapter 13 is really cool, uh, but we don't get a full picture of Saul in this chapter. But we do see one part of his character, and that is his pride. After this bit, as he is rebuked by Samuel, he doesn't take responsibility for his actions. He throws the blame at Samuel and at his own men. He says, I, was I felt compelled He's saying, I had no other choice. As we look at the rest of Saul's story, this isn't the only time he does something like this. He is dishonest, he is prideful, he lacks integrity, and the king of Israel should not be any of those things. What the king Israel needs is one that is humble and one that is faithful. Someone Saul is not. And so, Samuel rebukes Saul. But this rebuke is not the final rejection of Saul and his reign. In fact, that comes actually a few chapters later. 
uh, in chapter 15 when Saul does something similar. Rather, this is him losing the opportunity to establish an eternal dynasty. And that's the story. They went on to Gibeah and Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him and they numbered about 600. And so it was 600 men against an uncountable amount. I think this story is not only a story about uh, a failure or rejection, it is a story, it is a story, sorry, of Saul's failure of him taking matters into his own hands and not accepting God's commands. And it is a story that has powerful resonance with us today. And the temptation to take matters into our own hands is really quite great in our daily lives. It's not just thinking that we're better than our boss or our employee, nor is it uh, the, the thinking we're better than the 10-year-old on the field. It's thinking we know better than God or thinking he's not going to show up for us. We doubt him or we don't trust him and instead we run on the field when we know we shouldn't. This story is about trusting God when we see our own resources slipping away or even trusting God when we think our resources are sufficient, when we think we can handle it. I don't know where you guys are at, but maybe you haven't picked up a Bible in a long time. I'm compelled to not, though. I don't have enough time. Work is insane. The kids are insane. My friends are really needy. The apartment is a bomb. That last one's really accurate. I have a one-bedroom apartment and it is so hard to keep it clean. Maybe we have lost our prayer life. Because it's just too hard. And God's not answering my prayers anyway. And you can tell he's not answering my prayers because if you look at my situation... It is too hard to need prayer to, for, the, for the prayer to work anyway. Or maybe I found better ways to help. You know, unhelpful self-medicating. Uh, the idea of I know it's not great, but it works. Saul, Israel's first king, has received all of the blessing and empowerment any of us could hope to receive from God, yet when he is pressed on every side by the approaching army, Saul is still inclined to disobey God's command. The pressure of the game gets to him, and he runs on when he knows he's not supposed to. And he was the king of Israel, God's people set apart by, set apart by God. And so it's understandable that we would be the same. And you know what? It's understandable that we would be the same because this, by very definition, is sin. First comes uh, 
I really like this saying. First comes the tyranny of the urgent. The encroaching pressure from all around. And this is followed by an insecurity and self-doubt that stems from a lack of total reliance on God. And finally, the rebellion itself. Our human attempt to take matters into our own hands, to usurp or presume upon the authority of God. This is the picture of sin all throughout the Bible. And it is a picture we know all too well. At least in our most honest moments. It is a pattern repeated many times in our own lives. Incredibly, we have a solution for that sin. But I'm not going to get there just yet. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Saul. So his failure was taking matters into his own hands and not accepting God's commands. But he did wait seven days. Right? He did do the right sacrifices, and yet the rebuke and the consequence is pretty harsh. Like, read, read along with me, if you've still got your Bibles open, uh, from verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. He wasn't rejected as king, but he was going to get replaced. His ancestors weren't going to be kings and his rule would stop at him. A harsh punishment indeed. Sure, yeah, he ran on the field, but it was in the last minutes of the game. And he did pass to the kid who scored. I don't know if my analogy works there for everyone. I'm asking, it's not that bad, right? Problem is, if I run on the field at all, it's not okay. Saul here commits himself to partial obedience. In an attempt to ensure he will be victorious from a place of pride and a lack of trust, Saul takes matters into his own hands. It's a really um, amazing quote uh, from a guy, uh, Wesley, uh, and he says this. And indeed, there is no little sin, because there is no little God to sin against. In general, what to humans seems a small offence to him who knows the heart may appear a heinous crime. This theologian is picking up uh, on what the Bible makes pretty clear, that partial obedience isn't obedience. This was still a failure on Saul's part. It's not just clear, this isn't just a, an Old Testament God thing. Let's flick all the way to the back of our Bible, to Revelation 3, 15 to 16, where it says this. It says, uh, I know all the things you do. I know all the things you do. That you are neither hot nor cold. 
I wish you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's God in Revelation rejecting those who do not follow him. Those who are lukewarm. Not quite hot, not quite cold, half in, half out. Just like God rejects Saul's eternal kingdom, we are rejected from his eternal kingdom also if we are like Saul here. If we're half in, half out. Christianity is an all-in affair. Because we're offered an eternal kingdom. It's an incredible thing to be co-heirs with Jesus himself. I talked about our tendency to rebel against God before, but on the cross, Jesus died for us, sacrificing himself in our place. That sacrifice, that death for our death, that resurrection that we can share in as our resurrection, that eternity we do not deserve, but we are offered because we are loved. Our response to that, well, it's got to be thank you. Not maybe. It's got to be all in. Not lukewarm water. Uh, Many of us here today are Christians and have heard this kind of thing before. We know this. Yet we still fall into the trap of partial obedience. We can think God obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. I'll just do it. The Bible says don't get drunk, but I'm a happy drunk. So it's fine. Jesus says, love my enemies and turn the other cheek. But he didn't see what they did to me. I'll just fight back angrily and be filled with bitter hatred. But you know what? It'll just be that person. I won't do it with anybody else. I'll sleep with my girlfriend because we're going to be married soon. It's fine. Jesus himself says the same thing. Uh, in John 15, verse 5. He says this, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me my words, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is a warning. From the Old Testament ancient stories of Saul to Revelation at the end of the Bible, the call is the same, remain with God. For if we are not with him, we are against him. But I wanted to end on this verse in John Because it is also a promise. We can be with him. We can remain in him like vines on branches. Don't be like Saul. Yes, that's the application. Don't make his mistake. 
Don't run on the field taking matters into our own hands. We shouldn't be lukewarm, convinced that it's fine because we've got the right jersey on. But we are like Saul. To an extent, we are going to fail. But not if we remain in Jesus. And if we remain in Jesus, he will hold us close and we will bear fruit. We get to be grafted on to him. And because of that truth and that knowledge and that freedom we have in him, it is so much easier to not be like Saul. It is so much easier when there are armies around us, when there are pressures around us. The fact that we get to rely on him and not our own strength is an opportunity and it is a promise and it is a beautiful one at that. Uh, I'm going to leave us with that and I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that uh, we have this example in Saul. Lord, we pray that we may not be lukewarm in our faith, but we can be all in. Lord, we pray that we cannot share the same failure that Saul did by not following your commands and taking matters into our own hands. Lord, as we try to avoid these things, uh, thank you for the reminder in your gospel that you have got us either way. Uh, that you sent your son to die for us, forgiving us of all the sin we have ever done and will ever do. Lord, with that knowledge, help us to rely on you uh, and lean on your strength and not our own. For apart from you, we can do nothing. And so as we strive to live like Jesus, uh, thank you that we do so knowing that you're going to help us do it. In Jesus' name, amen.